Hello, it's Thursday 9th of February. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, we'll be chatting all things AI and sustainability in travel with Stuart MacDonald, founder of Travelfish. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So today we're delighted to welcome back Bali-based Stuart McDonald, founder of Travelfish. It's exactly one year ago since Stuart was last on the show, on the 9th of February 2022. So much has happened since then. Stuart's been back on his travels, and it's great to welcome him back for some lively travel chat. So let's welcome Stuart to the show. How are you doing, Stuart? And where are you right now? Uh, hey, Gary and Hannah. Thanks for having me. I'm in Bali at the moment, and it's, uh, it's not actually raining, so that's an uh, improvement. That's good to hear. So, you know, you say you're in Bali. How are things in your part of Bali? How busy was Christmas, New Year, Chinese New Year? Um, are things picking up? Oh, yeah. It's been very busy. Uh, over the silly season, um, it was... At least in South Bali, in the heavily touristed part of the island, things were extremely busy. Um, the traffic is back to its terrible levels, if not worse. Um, and uh, yeah, there was a very, very busy. We, we were just talking off air, Stuart, about the weather, and it is sort of rainy season there now, February. Do things generally tend to slow down at this point? And, and are you seeing any sign of that? Uh, yeah, where are we now? February. So yeah, I mean, it's not as busy as it was over Christmas, New Year's, uh, when there was uh, particularly a lot of Australians here. And that has died off a bit, but things will ramp up when we go uh, uh, at the end of wet season. So April, May, June, around then it should, assuming, you know, everything rolls on as usual, uh, things should pick up particularly with Europeans. So, I mean, Stuart, you, you decided during the pandemic to uh, take on a, a massive kind of personal challenge and pursue further studies and a master's, right? So what are you focusing on and what motivated you to make that change? Um, okay, well, I'm, I'm doing a master's in responsible tourism management at Leeds Beckett University in the UK, in Leeds, funnily enough. Um, and I'm into the second year of that, so I'm, it's a three-year master's if you're doing it uh, part-time, as I am. Um, and what's the motivation for it? Well, it was in the middle of the pandemic, and um, I needed to do something to keep my mind a little bit busier. Uh, and I started looking around, and this sort of sounded kind of interesting because I was getting more more looking at tourism a little bit more critically than I have in uh, pre-pandemic times. And, um, yeah, so it sort of sounded interesting, and I'm loving it. Um, it's, it's really nice to get back. In. It was certainly uh, a big adjustment to get back into the books. I was last at university when I was 20, 22 or something. But it's been, yes, very interesting, and sort of getting the the academic grounding in things that often I already thought. So now I'm better equipped to sort of say, well, instead of where in the past I would have just said, that's a really stupid thing to do. Now I can say that's a really stupid thing to do because A, B, C, D, E. Uh, so it's giving me a, a better 
a better grounding to look at tourism in a more critical light, which is certainly what I'm doing now. I'm quite interested, Stuart, in, in your cohort that you're doing, because you're doing this remotely um, online. Is yeah. it people around the world that are that they're on the same course as you? Yeah. Uh, so we've got the, the bulk of the students are in, in Leeds, uh, but there's also, let's see, we've got uh, from Toronto across to Sydney. So that's the spread of the time zones. It's a full spread. Trying to pick a time that works for everybody is a challenge. Um, and we've also got a lot of African students, so from Kenya, uh, Ethiopia, uh, Zanzibar, um, where else? Gambia. Uh, there's probably another one in there that the name is escaping me now. And then um, there's a couple of students in Europe. There's one in the the Orkneys, I think it's called, some wild wilderness thing off the top of Scotland that has a climate that absolutely doesn't appeal to me um and yeah so it's definitely a good spread and the the students some have rolled straight over from a bachelor's but uh, quite a few of them have have um already got quite a bit of professional experience so there's people who are uh, working for tourism boards or sustainability organizations and things like that so everyone's bringing something a little different to the paper uh, to the table and I think even from, from the, that kind of outsider point of view, you know, just watching how your, I guess, your LinkedIn messages, which is where I see you most often, have, have changed. You're right, right? It, it's from that, yeah, this 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 is my point of view too. This is my point of view and it's supported by XYZ. And I think that that's a really interesting um, shift. Yeah, it's, it, it's accidental. Um, but um, I mean, it, it hasn't really changed many of my viewpoints. Uh, but it certainly solidified some of them, strengthened some of them. I mean, some of the things that I've been ranting about, I mean, once I started the Masters, it was only then that I learned that people have been writing about these things for 30 years and nothing has changed. So it's um, it's been, yeah, a huge learning experience. And I'm very happy with the uni and the, the, the lecturers are... Uh, good. So yeah, it's, it's been an interesting experience and a year and a bit. Yeah. So we'll come back to some of the environmental and climate impacts elements of travel as we go through the next 25 minutes or so, Stuart. But you've been back on your travels. You recently went to Vietnam. What were you doing there? Where did you go? And was it a research trip? Well, it was a, it was a multi-purpose trip. Um, I was partly there. I was to, there to attend a conference in Hue, um, for a, it was the religious uh, religious and pilgrimage um, and tourism academic conference. I, the name of it escapes me, but anyway, I was invited to do a presentation there. So I was in Hue for five days for the conference, um, but also it was a research trip uh, just to sort of try. I'm still trying to figure out how I'm going to change travel fish. And so this was the first sort of trip out in the wild to sort of see um, what is practical from what I have in mind. Um, and then through that, um, I ended up doing, uh, I visited uh, five, uh, five or six centers on the trip. I went from bottom to top and I ended up interviewing quite a few people and I'll run a story on is is uh, sustainable travel to Vietnam possible? 
Um, I mean, the spoiler for that is no, but I'm, I'm, I'm still putting it together. And it was interesting to talk to people who were sort of at the coalface. And um, I think Vietnam is a, a good case study because it's, um, it's changing very quickly and it has some very problematic uh, tourism development stuff going on there. So whilst you were there, you were tracking your carbon footprint um, throughout the trip. So how did you go about doing that? And um, what did you find out through doing that? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, carbon tracking is like the new train spotting or something, I think. So I had, um, it was interesting. There was, when I decided to do it, I went to the, I have an iPhone. So I went to the app store and looked for carbon tracking apps. And most of them are very concentrated on just what you do at home. Like, do you recycle or how many steaks a week do you eat or whatever. But I wanted something that was more focused on, on transport and that kind of thing. And so I ended up settling on an app called Capture, which I believe comes out of Singapore. And it was a bit rough and ready. Like, I think they're still fairly early in their development cycle, but it was... It was good enough for for what I was. I wasn't looking to be um, exact to the milligram of carbon, you know. Along with them, I um, got access to another platform called PathNet Zero, which is more designed with tour companies in mind who want to like measure out the carbon for their trips. So what I did was I tracked everything on Capture, and then at the end of the trip, I plugged all the numbers into PathNet Zero. Um, so the first takeaway from it all is the numbers are all wildly different. Uh, everybody counts all of this stuff differently. Um, and often I think they're sort of calibrated perhaps to European or North American modes of transportation. I don't think you can treat like the an overnight train in Vietnam as uh, having the same level of carbon emissions as like a TGV in France, um, which is going to be far more efficient and blah, 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 blah. So that kind of stuff was a bit of a crapshoot. Um, and as somebody pointed out on LinkedIn in one of my threads on this, um, they said once you factor into the case that the Vietnamese trains are so decrepit or, well, very dated and leaky, old infrastructure and everything, um, it's going to be a bit of a line ball cut, uh, call between them and flying because the air fleets tend to be quite young and new, super efficient planes. So um, that was that was interesting. But, I mean, like getting the same numbers uh, were very difficult, you know, because each app uh, counts them differently. So those are good points, Stuart, because you said you traveled quite big distances in Vietnam. It's a long country. How did you travel around? Train. So I, I flew into Ho Chi Minh City uh, from Bali and I flew out from Hanoi back to Bali. And in between, I went from Ho Chi Minh City to Phan Rang uh, and then to uh, Hue and then backwards to Hoi An and then up to Hanoi. And pretty much everything was by train. I had a couple of long taxi rides where there wasn't a train line, um, but otherwise it was all train travel. Did you pre-book all that or did you do it as you went along? Yeah, I pre-booked it. There's a really good um, train booking website called Bao Lao. I actually met the founder um, when I was in 
and what you've been sitting. But um, yeah, they're really good, super reliable, and like the surcharge is nominal. Um, so I booked all my train ticket uh, train tickets before I left Bali. So I'd love to hear more. I mean, you were you were saying that you you went on this as a kind of fact finding to figure out how. Um, changes that you were thinking of for travel fish could be possible can we get a sneak preview of what you're thinking <laughs> uh, uh, um well i i don't know like i i mean we've, we've talked a few times over the years i mean you know that that i'm not the i don't have a particularly bright outlook um with regard to tourism at the moment and so uh, I'm looking at ways of sort of, at the moment, I see what I'm doing with travel fish as it's part of the problem. And it's uh, really like one of the things that I came out of from this trip and particularly writing this sustainable uh, travel in Vietnam thing, which is going to be about the length of a freaking PhD, um, is that really it, when you boil it down, it's just people need to travel better. Like there's all these different terms like sustainable and responsible and regenerative and blah, 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 blah. But really, when you boil it down, you just need to travel better. So it needs to be better for you. It needs to be better for the destination. It needs to be better for the people who live in the destination. I mean, really, that's it. So um, what I'm trying to get my head around is how I'm going to fashion that into into travel fish. Because um, because of, I looked at the way I traveled when I was there. So... When I was looking for somewhere to eat in Hanoi, once I'd established that the French place I wanted to eat at was closed because of Ted, um, I just went to Google Maps and I said, this is where I am. Um, I want something that rates at least 4.8 or whatever and has 20 votes. And then from that, I picked where I wanted. I mean, I'm very easily pleased with food. So that, that sort of system worked fine. And I had, you know, excellent meals all the way through. And the same goes for accommodation. I just think that it's not like the 1990s anymore when um, the OTAs and Google Maps and everything wasn't at the same level that they are now. And so I'll be cutting right back on uh, recommending individual properties and stuff like that. And that, I know Lonely Planet is, is working in the same direction. They've got a major a major change in how they're doing it. Um, but I think everyone is moving away from individual uh, listings like hotel reviews and this this particular noodle shop or whatever because there's just too much. There's around 8,800 hotels in Ho Chi Minh City. So I don't, I'm not interested in really going and looking at all of those. So, um, yeah, it's coming up with a, a something different. So... During my Vietnam trip, I was trying to find places that were were doing things better, um, that were more than just using bamboo straws, but like had like um, uh, better approaches to how they were running their businesses. And it's a very early, very early days. So even to look at, because I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll just list, list the businesses that are doing they have like a sustainable framework for their operations. And I mean, in, in a lot of cities, there just isn't anywhere that is doing that. So um, I don't, don't really see much point getting into that at this stage. So, yeah, it's going to be, I'm still trying to figure out what it's going to look like. So that segues quite nicely into the next question, Stuart, because you did mention uh, a, couple of, a couple of minutes ago there that Vietnam 
does have a number of issues in terms of its development, not just in terms of tourism, but in terms of infrastructure construction. Uh, the whole country is being built out at the moment. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about a couple of destinations that you visited to that you've commented upon in articles and, and online um, since you were there. So firstly, Hoi An. When were you last there and how has it changed? Because I haven't been to Hoi An, I think, for about 15 years. And everybody I know that's going there at the moment said it's almost unrecognizable. Yeah, uh, I do not go back. Um, that, that's my simple advice. Um, I first went to, Viet, uh, to Hoi An in 1994 and there was four places to stay. Um, people were like sleeping in restaurants and stuff because there weren't enough beds. Um, obviously, it's, it's far removed from that now. I get the appeal. I understand why people want to go. It's just not for me. The, the houses are very pretty with their colonial yellow daub and everything. Um, but it's like a, calling it Disneyland is a bit harsh, but it's not far off. Uh, people's residences are back off the street. It's very much like Luan Pabang in Laos in that way. And there's just, it's a small, like the historic quarter, they call it uh, District 1 or Zone 1, I can't remember. It's quite small. So in that area, ostensibly, there's not supposed to be motorbikes and that kind of thing. So it's just a pedestrian walkway, uh, walking area, which is kind of nice. Um, but there's these huge groups of people, like tourism. I was there, uh, well, it was just before Tet, and there were groups of like 40, 50 people per group. I mean, I was, they just should not allow that kind of thing. Um, and so you've got people going down these narrow photogenic laneways and there's already a queue around the corner to take a selfie there and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's, it just doesn't feel like a living Vietnamese town. And then you leave the zone, you cross, uh, cross one of the roads and then you're back in real Vietnam. And there's the chaos and the, the racket and the motorbikes and the street food and, and everything, like it's really in your face. And then you step back a block and it's all gone again. Uh, it's just a weird kind of um, thing for me. Um, so, yeah, it's not somewhere I'd race back to. Uh, if, if you've never been, I mean, yeah, sure, go take a look. I mean, there's good food. Uh, there's some good accommodation. And it is, like, undeniably pretty when there's not massive tour groups wandering around the joint. But the other thing there was uh, it's also got a beach strip, Kodai uh, and Anbang, and I went out there to have a look, and that was just a complete disaster area. It's a great example of the foolishness of development that's happening there, particularly from politically connected firms. So in the case of Kodai Anbang, which is really just the one long stretch of sand, I think it's Vin, Vin Pearl, I think it was, we built this hotel right at the end of the sandbar. And so the rest of the beach washed away. And then they built these stone retaining walls to try and keep their beach and that kind of thing. And meanwhile, at Ambang, which is like a kilometre or so down the beach, but has more of a dune, the dune is all gone. And so now it's like a four metre drop to the beach and there were Houses washing into the ocean and beaches littered with toilets and bits of brick wall and stuff. And it's like, dudes, you know, this is your premier beach location and you're letting it look like this. I, I mean, I had been told it was bad before I went, but blew me away. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't believe how bad it was. 
So what about Huey, Stuart? You wrote a bit more favorably about that in, in recent articles. Yeah, I love Huey. It's probably my favorite city in, in Vietnam. And I think it's an interesting one because of its proximity to Da Nang and, and Hoi An. It has kind of struggled to attract um, visitors for more than a night. And generally, because like it's a short tourist visa and everyone's trying to do everything and all of that kind of stuff, um, Huey is often the one that gets dropped off an itinerary or people only give it one day and that's it. And so there's not enough time to soak it up. Um, and so I stayed in the, in the old city, which is like oh, the old city on the north bank of the river. And that's where it's, it's great for walking and street food and all that kind of stuff. But you see very few tourists in there other than those who are visiting the citadel. And so I had the opportunity to talk to the director of, um, of Huawei Tourism. And I, he, he had been talking about how Huawei needs to reinvent itself as a spa and wellness destination, which was a bit out of left field for me. And I was saying, well, look, you, you could do like small steps, like to encourage people to like design some do-it-yourself food walks and that kind of thing. And it wouldn't cost a lot of money and it would just give people easy reasons to stay a little bit longer. Um, and it didn't really rock his boat, I don't think. But it's it's a beautiful, like, I, I love the destination. It's, it's a really, really interesting city. And the people are pretty cool. And um, and it's not crawling with tourists like in Da Nang or, or Hoi An. Well, you've convinced me, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go to Hoi. Um, so yeah. next topic, I would love to hear your uh, your thoughts on is I think something you've got quite strong feelings about um, is uh, the use of AI generated travel content. And this obviously, you know, chat GPT has been in the headlines a lot, but I noticed that you, you I think you were actually talking about it before um, this is all um, came up and, you know, a travel content creator, uh, what kind of role can AI generated travel content play in travel? Should it? play any role in travel at all? Um, it's a good question. I mean, I think as it stands, as what it's producing at the moment, I think anyone incorporating it into any kind of travel publishing is it's completely ludicrous. But that won't stop people from doing it. And I think, I think there's a whole bunch of problems with it. Um, probably the one that... Uh, uh, annoys me the most is consent like publishers haven't been asked whether they, they consent to having their material used to teach this AI thing um, so I think that's a really big problem and so chat GPT uh, doesn't credit where it's uh, where it sources data but I saw a, a story this morning that Bing's version does so I think that's a big difference like I think knowing the source of where your information is coming from is vital. You know, I want to know whether who who said so and so. Um, but as a general product, I mean, you can sit there and play with it. And like I asked it, you know, you can trap it. I asked it like, was Pol Pot a patriot? And it came back with like a very wishy-washy on the fence answer. And I mean, you can get it to say stupid things. I've seen some extremely bad travel content that has clearly been written with it you know there's riddled with inaccuracies and and that kind of stuff i'm yet to see anything really compelling 
Um, and I think a lot of the interest that I'm seeing is from the publisher side of things who are seeing it as a cost-cutting measure. They're, they're not going to have to pay these pesky freelancers and travel writers anymore. They can just get AI to write out a 300-word synopsis of way or whatever. Um, and I would say my advice would be do that at your peril um, because I don't think the information is there yet. It does, I think something that I've seen that is quite useful is like if I'm writing something, I can say, oh, I don't know, I'm writing something about the mating of the Mongolian butterfly and it'll, it'll give me out a bunch of bullet points. And so then I can sort of think, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that one. So like that kind of thing, a prompt that's helping me to think of other things to write about, I totally see the the benefit there or at least the time-saving uh, side of it. But sitting down, like I've seen people on LinkedIn talk about how they're building this completely into their product and I just think it's bonkers crazy. But um, I guess we'll find out, you know, down the track. And I mean, it will continue to iterate. It will continue to improve. But at the end of the day, artificial intelligence is a real misnomer. And it, what it really is, is a regurgitation machine. It, it's, so it's garbage in, garbage out. It's whatever gets fed to it. That's all it has. It doesn't actually learn anything. It's not able to um, create new information. All it can do is re, reorder um, existing stuff that it's been, uh, has been poured into it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a giant web scraping project, really. Um, but, I, but I'm going to challenge you on one thing there, Stuart. You, you, you were talking there about the, the lack of sourcing, the lack of referencing, and I totally agree with you. But is this, a, is this a generational thing? You know, Will younger consumers, do they want sources? Do they want references? Or do they just simply want the information? Well... Well, I don't know. Like I thought of, I thought about that from an academic point of view. Like whenever I have to write a paper, if I'm stating a fact, I have to reference it. So, I mean, okay, that's academia and everything, but I think it's a good baseline for this kind of stuff. Well, I mean, if you look at how people use their, do their trips, trip planning and they're using like TikTok or whatever and it's not particularly referenced to anything, I, I don't know. I guess... Maybe it's not so important. I don't know, but it's certainly important to me. And I think you only have to have some very bad information once to see the benefit of referencing so that then you know where that came from so that you don't listen to it again. With chat GPT, you can't do that. Yeah, that's a good point that you make there, really, because what, what we're actually talking about, it's, it's, you know, travel is so segmented, you know, it's all about different interests, different people want different things from their travels, from their travel information. But this is basically just one huge homogenization project where everything is going to be produced in a very similar way. And then you have to work out whether you're going to sort that, whether you want that, whether you want to reference or even, uh, even just disregard that. But the, vol but the volume of it is going to be huge, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, I think there's also... Uh, another big risk factor is around over-tourism and that it's going to be, it's a self-perpetuating cycle. And I mean, it's already like this anyway, like travel bloggers all write about the same places or whatever, you know. Um, but I think this is sort of taking it up a level. I mean, yeah, it's certainly a, you know, a super controversial topic. And like you said, Stuart, 
I mean, I th- I do feel, you know, that, that sourcing is going to be important. You, you do want to trust that, you know, you, you turn up and something is going to be there where you think it's going to be, for example, uh, for travel. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there was an example that I wrote about when I had my screed against AI the other week where I found a, there's a mate of mine, James Clark, who I think you've interviewed. He's forever sending me stuff that he knows is going to annoy me. And so he sent me this. It was on this Cambodia travel website, which I'd never heard of. And it was a, a detailed step-by-step guide to catching the train from Phnom Penh to Siem Reap. And it had like details of the different cars and the lunch car and the bar car and all this kind of stuff. There isn't and has never been a train from Phnom Penh to Siem Reap. The train just doesn't exist. They wrote 3,000 words about it. I got the copy and I ran it through, like there's these AI detector things. And so it came back and said, yeah, this is definitely written by AI. And it, when you read it, like you can tell it's just a word salad and, you know, you stop paying attention really. But, I mean, how many people, like if you Google train from Phnom Penh to Siem Reap, that page is number one. That, that kind of thing is a real problem. Like that is going to screw up people's trips. Yeah, and it was definitely written by AI. Uh, so, yeah, I think that kind of stuff will be interesting. So if people are then talking about saying, we want to integrate that into my products, into their products, it's like, well, what's your editorial oversight going to be? Like at what stage is it going to be easier and more reliable just to keep using people who know what they're on about uh, rather than uh, a regurgitation machine? Yeah, I agree with that, Stuart. And, and thanks very much for setting up next week's show very, very nicely, because I'll be talking to James Clark from future Southeast Asia about the developments in travel and transport infrastructure across the region. Yeah, Southeast Asia's number one train spotter. I tell you what, that guy is obsessed. Um, I actually saw him in, in, while I was in Ho Chi Minh City. So, Stuart, where's next? You're in Vietnam. You're back in Bali. Well, I'm... Um, I'm going back to Vietnam in um, you know, early March and I'm there for a couple of weeks to do a motorbike trip and I'm going out to visit a community-based tourism scheme and then back to Bali and then I'm, I was telling Gary about this beforehand, uh, off to Papua to go to Raja Ampat for two weeks of diving as a, as a guest of a friend who invited me to just come along. And so I am very excited about that. It's a once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunity. So, yeah, it'll be a change from motorbike in Vietnam, that's for sure. For sure. So that brings us to a close of the show for this week. Thank you so much, Stuart, uh, for coming on your I know I shouldn't say we have favorites, but you are one of our favorite guests, I think, for the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, listeners, we hope you enjoyed the podcast. And don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed with Stuart or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yep. And as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com, and you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today. I'm heading back to Japan in a few days' time, but Gary will be back with you next week to talk more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia and beyond.